Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The death toll continues to rise in the Hawaiian wildfires. Residents of a hard-hit town say they didn't receive any warnings and barely had enough time to escape. How much can former President Trump say about the 2020 election case? A federal judge decides on the protective order for the high-profile case, what it means for Trump. In a turn of events, the DOJ selects a Trump-appointed attorney to act as special counsel in the Hunter Biden investigation. What does this mean for the case, and why are some dissatisfied? The Illinois Supreme Court rules on a controversial gun control law. Find out where the state's ban on semi-automatic firearms stands after today's decision. And China is saying it arrested a U.S. spy. The CIA has said that it's trying to rebuild its network within the communist country. Find out what happened. The death toll from Hawaii's wildfires has risen to at least 55, and a thousand more are missing. The fire wiped out an entire town in the island of Maui. Wildfires on the Hawaiian island of Maui wiped out the entire historic town of Lahaina, which has a population of roughly 13,000. Hawaii emergency management records show no indication that warning sirens sounded before people ran for their lives. Many survivors said they didn't have enough time to prepare. There wasn't really an evacuation notice for us. It was more we realized that the town and our street looked like it was going to burn. Um, my phone got one ping as I was getting into my truck, and that was the only evacuation notice we had. As of Thursday, the four largest fires still were active in Maui County. Over 1,000 buildings were burned. According to PowerOutage.us, about 11,000 homes and businesses were without power early Friday. First, go through, try to find as many um, bodies and loved ones, missing personnel as they can. Then next is a little bit of cleanup. Then it's allowing the business and uh, homeowners to go in and grab their effects. So the public's not going to be in allowed in for a long time, and it's going to be a very long process before they can rebuild. The Maui County Police Chief estimated that approximately 1,000 people remain missing. The death toll could continue to rise. Vice President Kamala Harris told reporters Friday that she would like to visit Hawaii to tour the damage, but has no plans yet. She said she and President Biden are deeply concerned by what's happening. We are monitoring it closely. We are coordinating uh, federal resources to swiftly get there to support the work that has to be done, both in terms of recovery, but to just support the folks on the ground. It is tragic what has happened there. Officials say it could take days or even weeks to restore cell phone services on Maui. Hawaii Governor Josh Green said Lahaina residents are expected to be allowed back into the town on Friday. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. A mixed ruling for Trump. A federal judge this morning sided with the former president in a clash over how much he can share about the 2020 election case. But the judge also set limitations, striking down several requests from Trump's team. Entity's Iris Tau has more from outside the federal courthouse in D.C. 
This is a partial win for both sides. This morning, the first hearing in Trump's 2020 election case, Judge Tanya Chukin largely sided with Trump's lawyers in ruling that only sensitive materials should be barred from being shared with the public. That's a blow to the Justice Department, which requested a broad protective order against Trump, basically preventing Trump from sharing with the public even non-sensitive materials. They argue that Trump could intimidate witnesses. But Trump seemed fought back saying that the DOJ was trying to infringe upon Trump's First Amendment rights. And Trump himself said earlier this week. When we say I can't talk, I'd love to, I will talk about it. I will. They're not taking away my First Amendment rights. This morning, Judge Chuckin said that prosecutors have not shown a good enough cause for a blanket protective order. But she did hand prosecutors a win by broadening the definition of what could be considered sensitive. For example, she struck down Trump's team's request for designating witness transcripts and videos as non-sensitive, saying that sharing them with the public could risk intimidating witnesses. And she added that while Trump has the right to free speech, quote, that right is not absolute. And now prosecutors are expected to turn over over 11 million pages of documents to Trump's legal team, although most of them will be marked as sensitive, meaning that Trump will not be able to share them with the public. And next, we're going to see another round of legal fights in this case surrounding trial dates. And Trump's team has until Thursday next week to propose their own preferred date. And Trump yesterday lashed out at the DOJ for their proposal of a January 2nd trial day next year. And Trump says that's too close to the Iowa caucuses, and thus will be election interference. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NPD News. A turn of events in the Hunter Biden investigation. The DOJ today appointing a special counsel, U.S. Attorney David Weiss. Weiss is at the center of a controversy as to whether the DOJ engaged in political meddling in the case. NTD's Melina Weisskopf has more on what the special counsel's status means. This appointment of special counsel gives Weiss, who's been investigating this case for years, more authority over when and where to file charges. The DOJ usually appoints a special counsel when they have a conflict of interest. Right now, the current DOJ has appointed three special counsels, one for former President Trump's election case, one for President Biden's classified documents case, and now this one for Hunter Biden's tax evasion case. Mr. Weiss has the authority he needs to conduct a thorough investigation. But some are not happy with this appointment, particularly Republicans who are in the Judiciary and Oversight Committee. They recently urged for the DOJ to appoint a special counsel, but they're not trusting David Weiss in this case. Here's one post from the Judiciary Committee writing, Weiss can't be trusted and calling the appointment a way to whitewash the Biden family's corruption. And much of this distrust stems from whether or not Weiss had ultimate authority in this case before the appointment, an IRS whistleblower recently released an internal email from the IRS and testified this before Congress. Yes, he told me he was not the deciding person on whether or not charges were filed. He told us that uh, D.C. U.S. Attorney had declined to allow charges. He told us that he had requested special counsel authority from Maine DOJ and denied that and authority. And was denied. Now, Weiss later rejected this, saying that he did have ultimate authority, writing that in a letter to Chairman of the Judiciary, Jim Jordan. Two days ago, an FBI agent confirmed their testimony. Who are you going to believe? And this appointment of special counsel comes after a plea deal for Hunter Biden fell apart. Now federal prosecutors are saying this case is going to trial. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weisskopf, NTD News. 
And here to discuss this and more is Lee Smith, author of The Plot Against the President and host of Over the Target on Epic TV. We spoke earlier today. Lee, great to have you on again with us. Weiss's appointment as special counsel will grant him the authority to conduct a sweeping investigation of Hunter Biden without interference from the Biden administration. Yet Republicans have been wary, considering Weiss's track record, what Congressman Jim Jordan called a sweetheart plea deal and inconsistent statements to Congress. What do you think of this choice? Well, I mean, I think the purpose of this investigation, I mean, we can talk about David Weiss in particular in a moment. I, th I think the significance here of the, uh, is, is that they're, they're still just trying to make the case go away. This is why there was a special counsel appointed now. It reached a certain amount of, uh, a certain level of attention. Uh, it managed to push into the mainstream press. Some of your um, great audience may have seen uh, may have seen a little bit about this in the New York Times. And so, when it uh, something about Hunter Biden's corruption, so once it reaches the level of the New York Times, they have to pay a certain amount of attention to it, and they have to treat it differently. And that's what's happening now. The special counsel, um, uh, that's the golden shovel, let's put it like that, in order to bury this situation, they brought in special counsel David Weiss. David Weiss uh, is the U.S. Uh, attorney in, in Delaware. You may have heard many people, we've heard him describe, well, he was appointed by Donald Trump, so he must be on the level. He, he is not really a Donald Trump appointment, right? This was a person who was brought to the attention of the of, of the administration by Delaware's two Democratic senators. Most significantly, let's remember what Delaware is. Delaware is an extremely small state that has been dominated by one political family for half a century now. That's Joe Biden, and that's the Biden family. The idea that someone is going to get into a position of power, Democrat or Republican, right, in Delaware, without without being green-lighted by the Biden family, by Joe Biden in particular, is preposterous, right? So it's not as though David Weiss, I'm, 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 I'm not alleging anything underhanded. I'm just saying anyone who's expecting David Weiss to get to the bottom of Hunter Biden's corruption, to uncover what, what other journalists, including some of the great Epoch Times reporters, have found out about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's corruption is highly unlikely. Again, the purpose of this is to bury uh, Hunter Biden's corruption and to bury any ties that that might have to his, his father, now the president of the United States, Joe Biden. And there have been concerns that this appointment of special counsel may also prevent Weiss from revealing any anything that he's uh, uncovered so far in his investigation. What do you say to that? Well, that's what I mean. That that's what I mean. The golden shovel. They'll just bury everything, right? Because what what that means is they'll say, well, we can't comment on it now. Now that it's under investigation, the, 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 they weren't commenting on anything beforehand. Remember, the point is again, this has reached a certain level of attention, so there may be more questions. And now the Biden administration, Joe Biden's Justice Department, headed by Attorney General Merrick Garland, going to say, we can't comment on this. It's an undergoing investigation. You know, there's a special counsel that's been appointed. So this is a way to make all the noise go away. Just as very similarly, remember, there's another special counsel who's been appointed to look into uh, uh, President Biden's troubles, and that's Robert Hur, who was the special counsel who was appointed to look into Joe Biden's problems with classified documents. Now, remember, 
Uh, these arose roughly the same time as uh, as the Justice Department and National Ar uh, National Archives started going after President Donald Trump for uh, for his uh, possession of classified documents. Once it was understood that Joe Biden had them as well, they moved very very quickly to bury this information, and they did this by appointing special counsel Robert Herr. So what we're seeing here again is just another uh, another play using a federal bureaucracy, using law enforcement authorities, the, the Department of Justice, to bury problems for the Biden White House, as well as the Biden family, perhaps most crucially. Thank you so much. Lee Smith, author of The Plot Against the President and host of Over the Target on Epic TV. Worth a watch. Thanks to Venya. After receiving access to thousands of hours of January 6 footage, the Epic Times today releasing a new documentary based on surveillance video previously hidden from public view. We also have details on a new interview with the man who was the chief of the Capitol Police at the time of the breach. The Epic Times on Friday released a special report called the January 6 tapes. This comes after a three-month investigation by the newspaper of over 40,000 hours of U.S. Capitol Police surveillance video. Some of the most dramatic surveillance footage acquired shows the disabling of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick. He died the day after the protest at the Capitol. The cause of death was two strokes. Federal prosecutors charged two men with assaulting Sicknick with pepper spray, one of whom was Julian Ellie Cater. In this video, you can see a police commander firing numerous bursts of pepper spray from a high-velocity tank. The video shows the spray passing by the left side of Sicknick's face, after which he turns away and leaves the area, while Cater still appears to be some distance away. Cater's father said they never saw this video before. The Epoch Times showed it to them, saying they withheld this big time. Since it is in Washington, D.C., everything is stacked against the January Sixers. Another clip involves the Oath Keepers. Their founder, Elmer Stewart Rhodes III, was in court, partly for allegedly initiating a phone call to provide instructions on how to attack the Capitol. Defense attorneys at the time argued the call never happened. Video now shows Rhodes appeared to be attempting to make cell phone calls, but not having success. The entire documentary, which includes much more new information on January 6th, is now online on EpochTV.com. Also on Friday, Tucker Carlson published an interview with Stephen Sund, the former chief of the Capitol Police. Carlson had already interviewed Sund while Carlson was still with Fox News. However, the day the interview was supposed to air, Carlson was fired and Fox never published it, so Carlson interviewed him again. Sund says days before January 6th, the U.S. military was well aware of possible violence on the day of the protest, but then changed course all of a sudden. Watch. On Sunday and Monday, they had been discussing locking down the city, um, revoking permits on Capitol Hill because of the concern for violence. Instead, on January 4th, what does Miller do? He puts out a memo restricting the National Guard from carrying the we various weapons, any weapons, any civil disobedience equipment, that would be utilized for the very um, um, demonstrations or violence that he sees coming. It just doesn't make any sense. Sund also says he was among the only ones who was not notified about the expected violence. And the Illinois Supreme Court today upheld the state's ban on certain semi-automatic firearms and magazines, keeping the current law intact. 
The court's decision came after a 4-3 vote overturning a previous lower court ruling that said the law was unconstitutional. The law, called the Protect Illinois Communities Act, came in response to a tragic 2022 shooting that claimed seven lives at a July 4th parade in a Chicago suburb. The law restricts the sale and possession of so-called assault weapons, but allows for certain exemptions. This law sparked multiple legal challenges, with plaintiffs arguing that it violated their Second Amendment rights and treated them unfairly. But the Illinois Supreme Court disagreed. The justices ruled that the law did not deny equal protection and that plaintiffs did not validate claims of unequal treatment. Consequently, the justices reversed the lower court's ruling, retaining the law's constraints without expressing an opinion on the Second Amendment. And Sam Bankman-Fried, the indicted founder of the bankrupt FTX cryptocurrency exchange, is heading to jail. A judge today revoked his bail after finding probable cause that he tampered with witnesses at least twice. Sam Bankman-Fried is going to jail. The founder of the now defunct cryptocurrency bank FTX, accused of stealing billions in client funds, walked into a federal courtroom in Manhattan on Friday and learned his bail terms had been revoked. The 31-year-old who has pleaded not guilty to the charges has been largely confined to his parents' home in Palo Alto, California on a $250 million bond since he was indicted in December and extradited to the U.S. In setting the terms of his supervised release pending trial, the judge cautioned the defendant against speaking to the media or contacting potential witnesses. But Bankman-Fried shared the personal writings of a former romantic partner who is expected to testify against him at his October 2nd trial with a New York Times reporter. Prosecutors said this, quote, crossed a line. And on Friday, a judge agreed and ordered Bankman-Fried remanded. His attorney said he would appeal the decision, but the judge denied a motion to delay detention pending that appeal. He was led out of the courtroom by members of the U.S. Marshals Service in handcuffs after removing his shoelaces, jacket and tie, and emptying his pockets. Coming up, Ukraine faces a major corruption scandal. Recruitment offices are now under the microscope. How will Zelensky handle it? West African nations are proceeding with plans for a possible military intervention in Niger. But they're still hoping for a peaceful resolution to the crisis. We'll have the details for you after the break. China may have caught a U.S. spy. The communist country is saying so, and the American CIA has said it's developing its network in the communist country. Here's NTD's Tiffany Meyer with more. Beijing says it's found an American spy in its midst. Surnamed Zeng, the Chinese national is under arrest on suspicion of spying for the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA. The news follows recent word from the agency that it's working to rebuild its spy network inside China. Here's that clip from CIA Director William Burns. About a decade ago, the CIA rolled up, the China rolled up a lot of CIA operations in China. A dozen or more CIA sources were arrested or worse, executed. Have you rebuilt? 
um, yeah, we've made progress and we're working very hard um, over recent years um, to ensure that we have a strong human intelligence capability to complement um, what we can acquire through other methods. Over a decade ago, Beijing killed or detained over a dozen CIA sources. One of them was shot in front of his co-workers in the courtyard of a state building inside China. Back to the latest arrest, China says the newly captured alleged spy had worked from industrial group linked to the Chinese military. The group sent Zhang to Italy to further his studies. But while there, he reportedly got acquainted with a local CIA agent. The report refers to the U.S. agent as Seth. It goes on to say that Zhang later signed contracts with the U.S. intelligence agency. In exchange, he was promised large sums of money and a smooth U.S. immigration process for his entire family. The statement continues that Zhang repeatedly delivered core intelligence to CIA agents after returning to China from Italy. Something to note, China's revised Anti-Espionage Act took effect last month. The updated law gives Beijing additional authority to sniff out and punish acts that it deems a threat to its national security. Several U.S. officials have already expressed concerns over the new counter-espionage law. At the same time, tensions are still mounting between Washington and Beijing. The U.S. Embassy in China hasn't responded to the matter. Follow the money. That's the message from government watchdog group Open the Books this week. It's just released a report on the extent of third-party royalty payments flowing to scientists at the National Institutes of Health. While royalty payments aren't illegal, they are limited and could potentially create conflicts of interest. Earlier today, I spoke with the founder and CEO of Open the Books, Adam Andievsky, to learn more. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Your latest report poses the question, has the healthcare industry captured the NIH? In summary, what in your findings caused you to ask that? Well, the entire uh, pharmaceutical complex in the United States is roughly 3,000 companies, and that includes the new startups. When we just cracked open the companies paying third-party royalties, $325 million worth of third-party company royalties back to the NIH and 2,400 of its scientists, there's actually over 2,000 companies in the database. So it begs the question, has the industry captured the agency uh, because this third-party royalty scheme runs so deep? Last year, the acting director of the NIH, Lawrence Tabak, had said royalty payments have the appearance of a potential conflict of interest. Do you have a specific example of that from the data? Well, we do. So there's a Chinese company that actually licensed technology and is paying royalties to the former director and the current director of Fauci's Institute. They've got a lab over there called the Lab of Infectious Diseases. Um, he's all, that, that company is also paying royalties to, paid a royalty to Douglas Lowry, who is he? He is three times the acting director of the National Cancer Institute. So these are leaders within the institutes over at NIH, and they're receiving royalties from a foreign payer located in China and owned by the Chinese Communist Party, Sinopharm. Sinopharm was the, they distributed and manufactured the Chinese version of the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, this Wuhan Institute of Biological Products that's cutting the royalty checks to these executives over at NIH is also very close, both uh, in proximity, they're neighbors to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and they collaborate with the Wuhan Institute of Virology 
on different projects as well. So I think this is a great example of, of you know, the potential of an entire landscape littered with conflict of interest. And you mentioned foreign countries uh, in these payments. Your investigation found drug makers in 31 foreign countries, including China, as you mentioned, Russia and Belarus, which had paid royalties to top NIH officials. Should American taxpayers be concerned about that? Yeah, who knew? Who knew in countries like Belarus, which has rabid government corruption and is a satellite puppet of Putin and Russia, who knew that U.S. taxpayer-paid inventions over at our crown jewel science labs were being licensed to companies in Belarus or animal vaccine makers in Russia, with which the Washington Post had alleged has historic Soviet ties to being a front for a bioweapons factory. I mean, you know, there is the entire database here has the potential to unearth not only conflict of interest, but also uh, ways that all these different companies used our Crown Jewel National Lab to outsource their own research and development. For sure. And now the NIH still refuses to disclose the amount of money paid and the inventions involved. So what's next in this case for your organization? Well, the NIH has tried to stop us at every turn from getting this information to the American people. They ignored our Freedom of Information Act request. They forced us to file expensive federal litigation. When we won that, they slow walked 3,000 pages of royalty production over the course of a 10-month period. It was so redacted, it was nearly worthless. But just last week, they caved on the name of the company. So for the first time since 2005, we can tell who paid Fauci, former director of NIH Francis Collins, and all 2,407 of its scientists. And we've, we're looking for crowdsourced reform. Come to our website. We make this database available uh, in an Excel format, so it's very easy to search. And you can search and help us unearth the stories to hold the NIH accountable. And that's OpenTheBooks.com. Thank you so much, Adam Andrzejewski, founder and CEO of Open the Books. Really appreciate it. Thank you. A major corruption scandal has come to light in Ukraine. Investigators have uncovered an alleged money-making scheme at military recruiting offices. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. Ukrainian state investigators have uncovered some shady business dealings in military recruitment offices. To paint the picture, 112 criminal cases have been opened, exposing officials allegedly making illegal money. And they're also accused of transporting new recruits across borders to other countries. Now, how much money was actually taken is still unknown. However, all of this follows a scandal in the Ukrainian city of Odessa. A recruitment official's family in Spain was found owning properties worth millions of dollars. The corruption scandal comes at a time when Ukraine's long-awaited counteroffensive has been hampered by Russian defense lines. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky quickly responded to the corruption allegations and fired all military recruitment officers in the country. And he said this. The system should be run by people who know exactly what war is and why cynicism and bribery in times of war constitute treason. And he added this. Instead, warriors who have gone through the front line or who cannot be in the trenches 
because they have lost their health, lost their limbs, but have retained their dignity and have no cynicism, are the ones who can be entrusted with this system of recruitment. While the corruption scandal unfolds in Ukraine, President Biden has asked Congress for an additional $24 billion to help support Ukraine. He also requested $4 billion for United States border security. A recent CNN poll shows more than half of Americans say Congress should not authorize additional funding to support Ukraine in the war against Russia. Meanwhile, the fighting rages on. An eyewitness in Russia captured the footage moments before an alleged Ukrainian drone was shot down over Moscow. The explosion was really strong. You could hear it far away. All of my colleagues at the office heard it. On Friday, the White House said it's willing to train Ukrainian pilots on F-16 fighter jets right here in the United States. That's if training slots fill up in Europe. And White House spokesperson John Kirby said Washington is eager to move forward with the training. Jason Perry, NCD News. West African nations on Friday forged ahead with plans for a possible military intervention in Niger following the military coup there, though they have not given up hope of a peaceful resolution to the crisis. Alice Rizzo reports. West African nations on Friday worked on plans for a possible military intervention in Niger. The regional bloc also pledged to enforce sanctions, travel bans and asset freezes on the junta which ousted former President Mohamed Bazoum on July 26. After a summit of its heads of state, ECOWAS ordered the activation of a standby force for possible use against the junta. It said it had not given up hope of a peaceful resolution to the crisis, but that all options, including military action, were possible. Nigeria's president, Bola Tinubu. And we see from the community of this extraordinary summit that no option is taken off the table, including the use of force as a last resort. It is not clear how big the force would be if it would actually invade and which countries would contribute. Security analysts said ECOWAS force could take weeks or longer to assemble, potentially leaving room for negotiations. The junta has said it would defend the country against any foreign attack. So there's still a lot of unknowns, but this is a significant next step and certainly an escalation of um, tensions, at least, between the regional bloc and uh, the Hunza bloc that seems to be forming right now, between Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger specifically. In the capital, Niamey, residents condemned the military intervention plan. ECOWAS needs to understand what the people of the various member countries expect of it. What is expected of ECOWAS is to attack the causes of coup d'etat, not the consequences. The European Union and the United States reiterated concern about the conditions under which Bazoum and his family were being detained. Uranium-rich Niger is a key ally for the West in the fight against Islamist militants in the Sahel region. Until the coup, it was also aligned with the West after neighboring Mali and others turned against former colonial power France in favor of closer ties with Russia. France said late on Thursday it fully backed all the conclusions of ECOWAS meeting, but it stayed clear of outlining any concrete support it could give to any potential intervention. 
Coming up, it's that time of election season. Republican presidential candidates flocking to the fairgrounds in Iowa this week to share fried Oreos and skewered pork chops with everyday voters and hear directly from the people. Senator Joe Manchin is skipping a major White House event. It's left some speculating what his next move could be. And government censorship by proxy? We bring you highlights from oral arguments for the Missouri versus Biden case after the break. Iowa State Fair is in full swing. GOP presidential hopefuls flocking to the fairgrounds just outside Des Moines, shaking hands with voters while gearing up for the first primary debate in Wisconsin later this month. NTD's Sam Wong brings us more. It's time for retail politics to shine. Several Republican presidential candidates making stop in the state of Iowa this week, mingling with the very crowd they're catering to. The Iowa State Fair kicks off annually in August and it attracts millions of attendees every summer. And around election time, it becomes one of the major battlegrounds for presidential hopefuls to rally voters. Iowans can not only enjoy some food, but they also get to shake hands with the candidates. The state's governor, Kim Reynolds, is hosting a one-on-one fairside chat this year, giving all contenders a chance to speak. Here's former Vice President Mike Pence sitting down with Reynolds. And we need leadership that can appeal to the better angels of our nature, leadership that can at least have the possibility of bringing the American people together to strengthen our nation, to revive our economy, to defend our values. Aside from the one-on-one interview, Des Moines Register Soapbox has long been a tradition at the event. All contenders have 20 minutes to make their campaign pitch. But also, we're super grateful for all of you. Uh, we talk about the best of America, and we see it every day that we're in Iowa. The 2024 GOP primary debate will be kicking off in a few weeks. For those who aren't qualified to make it onto the debate stage, the Iowa State Fair is the opportunity to reach out to the crowd. Here's North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum chatting with folks while flipping chops and burger patties. Former President Trump's campaign said that he will also be at the fairground on Saturday, but won't be interviewed by Reynolds. Sam Wong, NTD News. And Senator Joe Manchin is skipping a big White House event as speculation rises of a potential party switch or even a presidential run under a new party. President Biden is holding the event in the White House to mark the first anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act. Manchin helped Biden push the act through Congress, but has diverged with the president since then on how it's implemented. A Biden aide is keeping in contact with Manchin. NBC reports that this is so that his next move doesn't come as a shock to the president. But a senior White House official downplayed Manchin's absence from the upcoming event, saying it was taking place during a congressional break. Manchin could become the president's opponent in the next presidential election. He's at least said that he is absolutely considering switching from the Democratic Party. Government censorship at the center of oral arguments for the Missouri versus Biden case yesterday. NTD Business's Don Moss spoke with a counsel at New Civil Liberties Alliance for the highlights. And now joining me is NCLA senior litigation counsel, Johnette Brown. So first, let's make sure that everyone's on the same page here. Um, just So just briefly, if you wouldn't mind explaining, what is the Missouri v. Biden case and what is NCLA's part in this? Sure, absolutely. The Missouri v. Biden case, it's two states, Missouri and Louisiana, 
Uh, five individuals, four of whom we represent, have brought a lawsuit against 67 defendants who, including the president, all of whom are in the executive branch, uh, basically saying that they have violated the First Amendment by coercing or otherwise manipulating social media companies uh, to censor speech, viewpoint-directed speech, um, on the various social media platforms. But the basic allegations are whether it's related to COVID-19, election integrity, and other topics that we touch on, the White House, the FBI, various parts of the federal government reach out to the social media and explicitly flag for them content and types of content that they want removed. And as a result, um, ultimately in most cases, the social media companies were taking down platforms, they were deplatforming people, they were suspending people, fact-checking people, various levels of turning down or turning off their speech. So they were removing speech uh, in, in the case of COVID, for example, simply because the messaging was different from the government. 100%. The, the White House in particular, but other agencies as well, were extremely laser focused on removing anything that they considered um, that would induce hesitancy to take the vaccine. So there was an oral argument yesterday and, and Biden's lawyers said that they have never threatened social media companies into censoring, censoring free speech. Uh, what is your response to that? I, I think the government doesn't know when it's threatening people. And I think that in and of itself is problematic. The government's view essentially is if we come to you 99 times and say, that's a despicable business you have. It's based on a premise that we have the power to destroy and we're inclined to do so. And then they come to you later and say, you know what would make you less despicable is if you become our tool. That's not coercion, but it is. They are threatening, you know, serious, serious consequences, billions of dollars of impact to these social media companies. Their theory is that, you know, until we break their will, they're actually just going along with us because they want to. All right. Thank you so much today. Thank you so much for your time. And a $1.2 billion deal for giant vacuum cleaners. The Biden administration is pouring that money into new projects that aim to suck carbon out of the air. The Energy Department says the funds will go to two demonstration projects in Texas and Louisiana. They will use chemicals to capture carbon dioxide from the air and then store it underground or use it in industrial materials like cement. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm said the initiative will remove more than 2 million tons of carbon dioxide annually. But critics call the approach extravagant because of the high cost of current air capture technology. And the process itself consumes large amounts of energy. If a student identifies as transgender, do the parents have a right to know? In one California school district, parents will be notified under a new policy. NTD's David Lamb reports. Parents whose children are enrolled at the Marietta Valley School District in Southern California will be informed if their students identify as transgender. The district approved the proposal on Thursday night by a 3-2 to two vote. Mrs. Vandergriff. Aye. Mrs. Young. No. The policy was presented by a lawyer. So again, it's certificated staff giving written notice within three days to a parent once they if they become aware that a student is either one requesting to be treated as a gender other than the student's biological sex or gender gender listed on the birth certificate including use of different name or pronouns 
parents would also be notified if the student accesses activities for the opposite gender, such as athletic teams or bathrooms, or requests to change information in the student's records. A board member who voted against the proposal said this affects students' safety in classrooms and brought up a different perspective. It's not about conservative values or family values or progressive values. It's about picking a fight with Sacramento that will be funded with your tax dollars. The policy says it's intended to support rights of parents and the upbringing of their children and to maintain trust between the district and parents. The stakes are really, really high when you have young kids who are flirting with these different ideations about what their gender is at a very young age because right now the state of California, for whatever reason, is intent on allowing minors to alter who they are. Another school district in Chino Valley recently adopted a similar notification policy. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Coming up, tragedy at 26,000 feet as an extreme mountain climber details her attempt at scaling the world's second largest mountain. We'll have that story after the break. Have you ever wondered what it's like to scale one of the world's tallest peaks? NTD's Dave Martin talks with an extreme mountain climber to get an idea. At more than 28,000 feet, K2 is the world's second largest peak, sitting less than 800 feet below that of Mount Everest. But height alone isn't always a determining factor of how difficult a mountain is to climb. No, K2 is a much more difficult mountain, and it's much more, uh, you know, Everest is much more known in the commercial world, but in the mountaineering world, K2 is a much more respected mountain. Lucy Westlake, who's about to start her sophomore year at USC, became the youngest American woman to summit Everest when she accomplished the feat last summer. This summer, she set her sights on conquering K2, which she describes as more of a steep wall. It's more technical uh, getting up to the summit, uh, much more technical, much longer days, um, and just much more difficult in general with the more, more dangerous with the avalanches and, and things like that. Situated on the border of Pakistan and China, K2 used to have one of the highest death rates of any mountain at more than 20% of climbers. But a flood of interest over the last few years has lowered that rate, not that it's suddenly become easy. I mean, you are, you are miserable a lot of the time, it's true. Um, there's, there's a lot of times where it's, it's, you know, where you are like freezing cold or you are just so tired and you have to walk for hours and hours, where your gear is like super uncomfortable, like the oxygen mask and, and it's, it's difficult for sure. Unfortunately for Lucy, her K2 summit bid was cut short when tragedy struck just ahead of her group. A man had actually fallen and was hanging upside down on the ropes. He, I, he couldn't walk by himself. He was wearing improper gear and he eventually died. Um, but people were stopped for a long time trying to figure out what, how to help him. 
but in an illustration of how things work on K2, the weight of all those people either trying to help him or waiting to pass caused an avalanche that caught Lucy's group. We thought that that was it, um, but luckily we, we survived it. It wasn't too big of an avalanche. But after that, we decided that, you know, there's probably going to be more avalanches. It's too unsafe for us, so we went back down. Now, unfortunately for Lucy, K2's extreme weather conditions make for a relatively short window of opportunity to make the climb, and that opportunity was now gone. But Lucy, who partners with a nonprofit called Waterstep that brings clean water solutions to third world communities, was still able to collect snow and ice samples at different heights of the mountain to be sent back for testing. She says the organization has impacted her personally. I had a friend um, who they who they helped to get safe water to. So um, so now it's kind of been like my my life's passion to to just help uh, do whatever I can to, to get safe water to people. Now as for the next adventure, the 19-year-old hopes to do some extreme rock climbing next summer. I'm Dave Martin for NT News. And finally, kids are headed back to class soon, and some experts are predicting an increase in back-to-school spending this year, even with a slight slowdown in inflation. Here's a look at how much more parents are spending and five tips to save some cash. New school year, new expenses. Parents are shelling out more cash in 2023 to send their kids back to class. According to a new Retail Me Not survey, the average American household will spend $1,498 on back to school supplies, electronics, and clothes. That's $251 more than last year's spending average. Just like with everything else that costs more, experts say parents can blame inflation. It adds up so fast. It's kind of like Christmas. We're buying a hundred different things from a hundred different vendors and it's so easy to lose track. So what can you do to save money and avoid a back to school spending hangover? Jessica Allen from the website Living Well Spending Less has five tips. One, take inventory of what you already have and then decide what you really need right now and put the rest on a wish list. Two, set a budget and then involve your kids with the shopping. The easiest way to do this is to give them the cash. <laughs> this is a life skill. The budgeting is a life skill and actually paying for items at the counter and interacting with the service staff. Three, buy in bulk and split the cost with other parents, neighbors, or friends. Four, stretch those electronics a bit longer instead of splurging on new ones. Look into items that you can swap or pass down. Is there a, a graduated senior who no longer needs that graphing calculator? And finally, wait for the shopping rush to pass. Wait until your children get into their classes and see what the teacher is actually asking for. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.